So one of the things that's difficult about this sermon series is we're trying to take a whole lot of information and put it into one single sermon within there. And so um, that has been difficult with Noah. It was very difficult with Abraham. And it's going to be impossible to do with the Mosaic Covenant as we do in there. Because to, to bring into the no, Noahic Covenant, you're looking at uh, multiple chapters in Exodus and the entire book of Deuteronomy. So we're just not going to be able to do that. Just know that there's a lot of things that we're not going to be able to cover. But we're going to try to get to the height of everything. And so let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. We thank you for your love and for who you are. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would just be with us today in the midst of all the, the things that are, are going on and that you would help us um, and that you would keep us locked in and focused on Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things that I have been trying to wrestle with and deal with um, individually over these last couple of years, and it's been really driven because of my own struggles with mental health uh, and anxiety and, and all those various things, is trying to understand what is rest? What does it mean to actually rest? Now, most of you would probably say, well, that explains a lot about you, Bo, that, that you don't understand something as simple as rest. I mean, that should be pretty obvious. Rest means you're not working, right? Well, Yes, to a degree, and certainly one of the things that we struggle with as a society is an understanding and embracing the fact that we have limits as individuals, and that's actually a good thing. That goes back to the Genesis account. When God made Adam, he did not create him infinite. He created him finite within there, and we talked about that back in the Being Human series uh, uh, a year ago, right, or a couple years ago, I guess now at this point. And so we were never meant to be infinite. And so when we embrace the things like the fact that we need rest, we need sleep, these are all actually God-honoring things because it reminds us that we are dependent, finite creatures who are meant to be in relationship with an infinite, limitless God within there. And so it certainly is a good thing for us to understand and embrace the reality that we have to stop ceasing to strive. We have to stop ceasing. We need things like sleep. We need things like rest. We need things like time where we're not just doing busyness to just be, right? But that's not exactly what I'm talking about because what we can understand is there's another form of rest that takes place. Another deeper form of rest that, uh, uh, that is there that gives us life. Uh, any of you ever thought, man, I just need a, a day off, and so you've just devoted it to, you know, hey, I'm just going to watch something on Netflix, and then the next thing you know, you watch like season one, two, and three of something? <laughs> Am I the only sinner here? Okay, all right, yeah, I, I, I've done that, Right? Or you've gone in and you say, hey, you know, I want to look up how to do something on YouTube. And three hours later, you realize that you're watching some silly cat do something. And like, <laughs> what just happened to my day and my time here? But the thing is, and yes, there's a time, and, and, and I'm not against us taking time to watch a movie or a show or anything like that. But have you ever noticed that sometimes 
or I should say, actually for me, most of the time, after those excessive binges, if I'm being honest, I don't feel more rested. I don't feel more like I've gotten gotten full rest. In fact, I can be downright grumpy sometimes after that time. There's also times when I've given in to my own self-indulgence within there, and a lot of times I want to find rest in food. And the weight that I've gained over the last two years has been, sh- uh, you know, shown that. I want to say, ooh, man, I feel like resting in this double cheeseburger from In-N-Out. Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> All right. I mean, that, I mean that, there's a rest that I seek to find in that, right? And it tastes good and it feels good and it's cathartic in the moment. But I don't necessarily feel better for it in the moment. Now, certainly there's a place by the grace of God for us to get a great cheeseburger, right? But when I continually seek to indulge myself and to say, I'm going to find my whole rest in this place and in this thing, I don't find my soul having been nourished having found true rest. I don't feel relieved from the anxieties and depression of my day. In fact, a lot of times it turns me inward and grumpy and I feel resentful that I don't get more because my, my soul hasn't been truly satisfied within there. And so we long for this sense of rest. We need this sense of rest. But here's the good news. One of the things that we see on the very early on in the stage of this series is that that God has provided us rest. All right, Joseph and all those behind the scenes. Thank you. God has provided us rest. And we see it right off in the early back. And right what we see in Genesis, in the creation of the world, God has provided a way through his creative acts for us to enter into his rest. And so much of what redemption is, is learning to enter into that rest. And so as we look at the Mosaic Covenant, a lot of us, and by Mosaic Covenant, what do I mean by that? That is a lot of times a term that is often used, sometimes it's called the, the covenant with Moses or the covenant with Sinai. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's simply called the old covenant within there. But a lot of times when we think of the old covenant, we look at it and we say, this is God saying, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. You need to do that. And if you don't do that, you're going to get cursed. Or if you do this and you do that, you're going to die. You know, we think of it in those sort of ways. But at the heart, the heart of the covenant with Moses the, in which he is forming his people is ultimately that glorious reality which so many of us as we are moving into the holiday season and frankly the other 365 days of the year, our hearts are longing for that rest and it's saying there's a place in which God is seeking to bring his rest back into this world. And that is the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. Because our world is crying out in brokenness. Our our world is crying out from our bodies that just feel broken. And whether it's ailments or diseases, 
whether it's the stress of the brokenness of the relationships that create so much relational pressure on us during the holidays that just say, I need a break from this. Whether it's from the stress from our jobs, which is part of the curse of the, the world, that there would, there would be toil in our labors, right? The curse from our own sinfulness. What God is saying is through his redemption, he is looking to give us rest. And that's what I want us to highlight and see as we look at the Mosaic Covenant, because that the rest that God is seeking to give his people as a covenant community is a foreshadowing for the true rest that is ours in Christ. And it is ultimately a rest that we see is only a foreshadowing. And in fact, the people themselves could never enter into that rest. They never could. And so we begin in understanding that as we look at this Mosaic Covenant, which is what the term I'm going to refer to it typically, what it is, is it is an extension of the Abrahamic Covenant. So it's not replacing the covenant of Abraham. It's not changing everything. It is an extension. It is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant and pushing kind of the narrative forward, so to speak. And so we see that quite clearly in the beginning of Exodus. Now, if we remember in Genesis, it ends with the Abraham has had his children, Isaac, and Isaac had two children, and the promise went to Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Israel had his 12 kids. And then there was a famine in the land and, the, and they all left and they came into their brother Joseph. And it was a long, very messy, but gloriously good story where Joseph had achieved this, the, the, about as high as rank you could get outside of Pharaoh. And he provided refuge for his brothers and sisters. Our, our brothers, I should say, as they came in uh, to Egypt but this is all according to the promises given to Abraham. Because if we remember in the covenant itself, God told Abraham, your, your kids, your offspring, they're going to leave this land. They're going to be formed and they're going to stay out of the land for about 400 years. And they're going to be in slavery. And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 1 and it says this. In Exodus chapter 1. Hold on one second. Maybe I'll blow this up here. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, do you see how this is tying not only to the promises of Abraham, but even going back to the promises of Noah and even to Adam? And so there's this saying that God is at work bringing about his covenant through making his chosen people fruitful and multiplying them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them that they may multiply, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they 
set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, fit them, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this is all going, really, as horrible as this seems, this is all going according to what God has foresold is going to happen. And so if we were to kind of map out, and this is a very simplified, and, and I do have a little bit of issues with this outline, but I think it's pretty good in general to kind of see and break down uh, the overall book of Exodus. But if you were to kind of outline it in a very broad, simplistic way, what you could say is it can be broken down into three sections. God delivers his people in chapters 1 through 15, he is delivering them. He is saving them from their oppression, from their taskmasters. Um, he saves them and delivers them. And in doing so, he reveals himself to the nations and to the people. He has saved them. And then God is going to speak to his people. He is entering into a formal relationship. And this is where we're going to hone in on the covenant um, in chapters 16 through 31. And then God dwells with his people. And so and part of the instructions that, are, that they're to do is they're to create this tabernacle, which represents God's presence amongst his people. So he has identified them, and he has saved them. He has entered into this gracious relationship with them in which he has saved them while they were in a place of slavery. He has formed them into this people, and he is in this formation, he has instructed them to create this, this place in which God will dwell with them, symbolically through the tabernacle. Okay? Now, what you see then right there in the heart of that is what God is going to do in forming them to his people. He is going to create, he's going to cut, quite literally is what the, the Hebrew says, another covenant with them. Again, there's all kinds of different words for it, the Mosaic Covenant. And you find the heart of this Mosaic Covenant is first given in Exodus 19 through 24. However, so keep in mind that this is the initial uh, forming and the declaration of them to become his people. And so this covenant essentially in, in chapters 19 through 24, it's bookended with a kind of a prelude in chapter 19 in which God states the purpose of this covenant. And it's bookended in the backside with chapter 24 where the covenant becomes ratified. And the most, uh, the, the largest allusion to this, this, this covenant ceremony is that of a wedding. And so God is literally, he's kind of creating this formal covenant relationship with his people that, like I said, it kind of resembles a wedding. And certainly that makes sense to us because we understand marriage to be a covenant union that ultimately foreshadows and imperfectly because of our sinfulness points to our relationship with God. Now, they're also, this, this is as these formed them, as he's just rescued them, but we keep in mind what happens 
right off the bat, as God is giving this formal covenant, and the very first thing in this covenant is you will have no gods before me, and you will not create an idol, an image of me, or any other god. And as he is giving that covenant, the people are breaking it. And they are a stiff-necked people. That's covenant language that he uses constantly. They're people who are rebellious, and so they, they question the Lord, and they are not able to enter into his rest, the rest that this covenant provides. And so he doesn't allow them to enter into the promised land. So they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then as they are getting ready, to, a new generation has come about. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so all the fulfillment and the promises of them moving into it are about to take place. And so God gives them a, 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 a more covenant language that we call the book of Deuteronomy. And this, this, the book of Deuteronomy resembles a, uh, a, a, a treaty, a, a Caesarean vassal treaty that was known at that time. And it's a stipulation of a covenant. And it's very formalized within there. And so it's not a different covenant, but rather is kind of a covenant renewal for the people as they're moving into the promised land. And so when we had to examine what the covenant is, you really want to look at as initial giving in Exodus 19 through 24 and the book of Deuteronomy itself within there. Now, as we look at the purpose of the covenant in, in Exodus 19, Verses three through six, it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words that, I, that uh, you shall speak to my people Israel. Now, one of the things God declares there, and he makes very well known, God has not surrendered any of his sovereignty of the whole world up at all. He's not saying the, whole, the rest of the world isn't really mine. no. The rest of the world is mine, but you're going to be a special treasure before me. This is uh, the Hebrew there has an allusion to kind of the, the personal treasure of a king. You know, the, a king may have this grand national treasure, but he, a lot of times they would have this special kind of treasure vault within there. There is their special, uh, most prized possessions within there. And he, that's, that's the term that's used there for my possession. But also notice what he's saying there. You're going to be a nation of priests before me. And so what he's saying is that I'm making about that which I've already been promised, Abraham, that we saw as the sign of circumcision, right? And that, that sign of circumcision, what that was, was that it was highlighting that each and every one of them was going to be a priest before God. But also as we look at this covenant relationship between Adam and, um, and Eve, that there, the relationship was always that of a priest, a one who, uh, priest who operated in the tabernacle within there. And as he gives the covenant, it really can be broken down into two sections. 
The first section is in chapter 20, which we often call the Ten Commandments. And so most of you, you're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. You've probably been taught them at some point. A lot of times they used to be displayed uh, in a lot of uh, courtrooms and so on and so forth. Uh, Commandments is actually a bit of a misnomer. That's not actually the, the correct word in the Hebrew. The correct word there is actually the Ten Words. Sometimes scholars will call it the Decalogue. There's all kinds of different names that we use for it. But actually, the, the word that is used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament is the ten words. Now, Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry has proposed this. I find it interesting, but if I'm being honest, I haven't, I haven't been able to find another, comment, another scholar uh, even mention this. So I'll leave that disclaimer up there. But he brings this up. He says... Because he emphasizes the fact that it says it's the ten words. Now, what have we seen throughout as God is creating covenants? It Really, they're all kind of going back to the creation account. It's God recreating, bringing in, recreating that which he has already done. Taking back that which was his, which is under the curse of sin. And he points out that with the ten commandments, there's a sense in which he is creating something new. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1... It is said 10 times, and God said, let there be. So in other words, there's a sense in which God's saying 10 times in Genesis chapter 1. So there's a sense in which this almost kind of models that, that kind of recreation. I think it's really interesting. I wouldn't die for that, though. Let me just put it that way. So, but it's the 10 commandments, which are the 10 words now, this isn't listed as in the standpoint of like what we would often call a law, right? This really almost becomes more like, as one Old Testament scholar, almost like the Constitution. It creates a vision, so to speak, of what God's covenant people are to do and to be about. It creates almost a vision. This is who we are. And most people have noted that the first section of those 10 words or 10 commandments all deal with the relationship between uh, the covenant people and God. And so they're, they're not to have any other gods. So another, they're, they're to recognize the uniqueness and the sovereignty and the exclusiveness of Yahweh. They're not to uh, create any other idols. So they're not to try to uh, manipulate God through any kind of form of any idol. They're not to create any idol worship through them, which was so prevalent and, and really the only thing people knew in the ancient Near East. They weren't to take the name of the Lord in vain. But then the fourth commandment is that they would keep the Sabbath, remember rest, and that they would keep it holy. And then all the, the following commandments after that deal with how people were to relate to one another. So in essence, it's what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love people within there? That's if you wanted to kind of put the, the Ten Commandments and, and kind of to summarize it, that's how you would do it to be most accurate. And then was followed by the Ten Words or Ten Commandments in chapters 21 through 23 are what's called the judgments. Now, these is basically what they are is, is giving us examples of how to put the Ten Commandments into very practical ways of that, uh, you know, early Iron Age day of how you would express uh, 
and work, how does the Ten Commandments work itself out in very real practical terms and ways within there? But just as each and every other covenant that we've seen has had a sign. So, for example, the Noahic covenant had the sign of the rainbow, of the bow, I should say, specifically. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant had the sign of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant also had a sign. And what was that sign? Well, we've already kind of alluded to it. It's that fourth commandment, that of the Sabbath. And you kind of see it because of all the Ten Commandments, that, that, that covenant has the most uh, verbiage. It uses the most word to describe it, and it certainly shows its prominence within the Ten Words. But it becomes extremely explicit later on in Exodus chapter 31. And so it says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is, it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does not does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but then the seventh day is a uh, is Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So what do you see there? Number one, it's explicitly laid out that this is the sign, just as circumcision was of the Abrahamic covenant, the bow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. But also notice he is tying this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, once again, back to the creation account. And so we see once again, this is, becomes an unfolding, a continuing narrative rather than something that just is all of a sudden a whim of God. And hey, let's go this direction now. No, this is an unfolding plan that God is doing within there. Now, this also helps us understand in the New Testament as well. Because keep in mind, what was one of the things that drove the Pharisees nuts that caused some of the greatest tension between Jesus and the Pharisees? When he healed on the Sabbath. They became extraordinarily angry and protective of the Sabbath. Why? Because they viewed the Sabbath. And so often when they charged him and they came against him, it was arguments because he was doing things that they called work on the Sabbath. Why? Because that was a sign of the covenant. So if you could get him on that, you got him on really on all of the, the Old Testament covenant. And so why was it that there was so much opposition and going on and back and forth? Because of the Sabbath. And they, they took this in a very legalistic way that led to death. And they missed what the Sabbath was to do. It was actually to, to give life. And that was the whole sign of it, to give a rest, to understand that the covenant law was to give life and rest. And so that's what made Jesus so angry that they couldn't understand about the Sabbath. It's because as they looked at the very sign of what the Old Testament law was to be, they missed it. They completely and utterly missed it. And it, was, and it was a sign that their whole heart's approach to the Old Testament law was off and skewed and wrong. And so it goes on then and it gives us Deuteronomy, the covenant in Deuteronomy. 
which we're not even going to get close to be able to talk about in, in any meaningful sense, really. But at the heart of Deuteronomy in this covenant, in which he gives more explanation on what does it mean for them to, to live in this covenant relationship with God as a nation, we find at the very heart of Deuteronomy, and I would say, along with many other scholars, the very heart of the Old Testament is this, this, this uh, uh, verses. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. Uh, typically, it's called the Shema. And it's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so what, what have we already seen? This really encapsulates what the whole Old Testament Mosaic law is really all about. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in fact, Jesus affirms that because as he's going back and forth with the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 22, we find this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So what is he saying here? If you want to know and you want to kind of summarize, you want to pull everything into that, that's what this is. Now, that second part, loving your neighbors yourself, comes actually from the book of Leviticus. So what you see is God informing this covenant community. He is forming them into a people. And, and, and the, the word Torah, even though we often call it law, a better translation is instruction. What God is doing, he's saying, I'm going to teach you to be my people. I'm going to teach you and help you understand what does it mean to be a people who live in this world in a way that understands this is what it was always meant to be, to love me. And out of that flow of me, how does that go and how does that spread rest throughout all the rest of creation? beginning with the social relationships, and it even affects how they were to use the land in a way that was responsible. The Bible was some of our first environmentalist texts, folks. It's talking and trying to teach them how God brings about his rest. But of course, what we see is the people, they're never able to get it. They, they're sinning. They sin right off the bat as God is giving them. And they've seen, I mean, we're just talking about days since he's rescued them in such mighty ways. And they're already building a bull, a calf made of gold and worshiping it. And then, of course, they, they can't trust God in going into the, into the promised land. And they want to go back to Israel or they want to go back to Egypt. And in Deuteronomy, in the covenant, Moses actually looks at me and says, Look, I know you're a stiff-necked people. I know you're not going to be able to follow this. 
Because you're sinful in your heart. He's not trying to be mean. He's being honest. And what we see, even in the giving of this covenant, it is acknowledging that it is a shadow of things to come. It is a shadow of something else. It is foreshadowing something that is to come. It was never in of itself meant to be something that was permanent that would ultimately solve the problem of the fact that we are a people lost in rebellion and unable to fully enter into God's rest, his shalom. But it foreshadows what God's going to do. And the first things that it foreshadows, and this is all coming from, uh, I'm working from a very helpful text, which I think laid a lot of this out, called uh, Christ from Beginning to End by Trent Hunter and Stephen Wolfham. They give a whole bunch of them. Time doesn't allow me to get into everything. But one of the first things I, that we see in Deuteronomy is the promise that there's going to be another greater prophet, and that prophet is Jesus. So Deuteronomy 8, 18, and again, this is foreshadowing that this isn't complete. There's more still to come. This is a foreshadowing of something. Moses says, the, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb and in the day of the assembly when you said... Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now we fast forward to the gospels, and I don't have time to look at each and every one of them. Keep in mind, Remember when Jesus is being transfigured on the mountain, right? In Luke chapter 9. And so you see him there in this transfiguration glory. And who appears? Moses and Elijah. And Peter, of course, does the very Peter thing and says, Oh, this is great. Let's set up a booth for Moses. Let's set up a booth for Elijah. And let's set up a booth for, for Jesus. And what do we hear? Jesus comes, or God the Father breaks into this moment with a loud voice saying, this is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen what else did Jesus often say as he's, as he's teaching them, particularly in the Gospel of John in the Upper Room Discourse? I've given you the words that were given to me by the Father. Explicit references that he is the prophet who is to come. And of course, Peter makes that explicitly clear in Acts chapter 3 in his sermon. He is the prophet by which he is to come. Secondly, in the shadow of things, Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. Now, we understand that the, the word son of God means he, was, he, he is God's son. And so that he is, that refers to an emphasis on his divine partaking as well. But there's also a nationalistic name within there. We've often seen that Israel was called God's son. David was called God's son within there. 
And so often when God is saying in his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that's not only referring to his deity, but it's also referring to the fact that he is the true Israel in whom he is well pleased within there. Not only that, what you see is he is one like Israel who came out of Egypt. He was tempted in the wilderness And notice how long was he tempted? He was tempted for 40 days, just as the the people of Israel were tempted for 40 years. He fasted, and yet he was sinless. Uh, Oftentimes in the prophets, Israel is called the vine, the vineyard of God. And Jesus in John chapter 15 says, I am the true vine. All these are things are saying that ultimately, as he forms his people Israel, they are a prototype, a foreshadowing of the true Israel of God, which is Jesus. Now, thirdly, what we see is Jesus himself became the curse of the law. And so what we see, we saw within this covenant, there's both the blessings, but there's also the curses for those who don't follow it. Now, we've already seen Israel can't follow it. Right off the bat, they fail to follow it. So they're kept only by the grace of God. But there's a specific verse in the Old Testament where it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All the curses of, the old, of this law, this Mosaic cur- uh, um, covenant comes upon that person. And so Paul highlights this and shows the significance by saying, when Christ came upon, was hung on the cross on a tree, all the curses of the law came upon him. He is, of course, the perfect tabernacle. Now, we quite simply don't have time to show all of the imagery that's being done in the tabernacle. I've mentioned that at the end of the mosaic, it begins to give instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And we are to go through and illustrate all the different ways, uh, you know, kind of line by line, the tabernacle. You see that all of this is echoing Eden. The, this, the fact that it, this entrance is from the east side, the imagery in the holiest of holies, which uh, uh, has symbolism of the tree of life and um, the decorations of the veil, all these things, they represent God's uh, Eden being reconstituted amongst his people. But what we see, however, is in Jesus, he is the one who tabernacled among us, as the Gospel of John says. And as, the, as Hebrews says, he is the true tabernacle, God's presence amongst his people. And finally, ultimately, Jesus as what has been emphasized so much is that we'd find his rest. Jesus is our rest. Now, let's go to a passage that a lot of us have thought through a lot and depended on. Matthew chapter 11. What does he say? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. He is saying, I am the true rest of God. In the midst of a world that is broken and striving. In the midst of the world that is trying to find ways to find rest and relief in their soul. The brokenness of their bodies. Brokenness of their mind. The brokenness of their will. Those who try to please and do what is right and find they can never do it. Those who are beat down by the world. God says, I am your rest within there. 
this holiday season as we come in, what this does is this reminds us. A lot of us, we're going to be looking for rest. We're going to be looking for relief. We're going to be saying, man, I need a day to just sit and watch all of the Avenger movies. I don't recommend it. It's not that good. (laughs) Says one who tried to do it once and failed. I tried to do it with my boys, to be fair. There's a lot of different ways you can try to seek rest. And it's good. It's good to take some time away from things. But there's a rest that God can provide you that you can find regardless of what the people around you or even your body allows. A rest that can come and find itself and say, God, I am dependent upon you. A rest that says, I must feast upon Christ in his word. Not, and here's the thing, to take on that rest, we can move into that in a way of legalism like the Pharisees did with the Sabbath and say, oh, nope, you gotta do this. Or we can move into a place of genuine peace and saying, I get to just spend some time with God. This is a grace and a mercy. And I'm not gonna put pressure on what this has to be. I'm just gonna read scripture. And I'm just gonna pray I'm just going to allow God to nourish my heart and my soul. I've done certain things throughout this year. These are my things. They don't need to be your things. Okay? One of the things that I've found that I I can be a real addict to YouTube. I'm not necessarily watching bad things. But what I have found is I just click on one thing and then I'll look for the next thing. And oftentimes they're good things. But at the end of it, I find myself having spent an entire evening without spending time with my family, spending time in the Word, or reading. And so one of the things I had to do is say, I've got to take a fast and actually a break from YouTube. And instead use that time in, in devotional reading. And you know what I found? My anxiety's way down. My my being able to rest is far up and I actually enjoy my evenings a whole lot better. Now that's for me because that was an idol. That was a place of me trying to find false rest in something. Maybe that's not an issue with you but maybe your false rest is in shopping. Whenever you're stressed and you want to do something you need to go, let me go to, let me go see what's on sale at Amazon. Or let me go do this. Maybe your false rest is food. Whenever you you want to raid the pantry. And this time of year, as you see all the homemade fudge, it is, it's something else, right? Maybe your false rest is you feel like you have to spend time with a particular family member. Now, all of these things are good. It's good to eat a piece of fudge. It's good to eat and to enjoy the delicacies of this year. It's good to to find a good deal on Amazon. These are good things, but are the places that you're looking to find your rest, to say, I can have a good day if I get this? Or is it come from knowing and being in a gracious relationship with God? 
we get to take on a symbolism of bringing that real rest home as we enter now into a time of communion. This communion, in, an, in a perfect world, I would have been able to unpack all the Old Testament symbolisms of this Old Testament covenant meal and how it leads us to Christ. But let me just give a very quick understanding. This is the Passover meal. It's resembling of God's deliverance of the people of Israel and forming them into a nation. And Christ took that symbolism of this Old Testament and said, and he repurposed it for his church to remind us that we are saved by what Christ has done for his, his atonement for our sins. And we take that into us and we allow it to what? Nourish us. That's why it's food. It's a reminder that his love, his salvation is what truly gives us life and nourishment. So I would invite you, as you come and you hold on to to these elements, that you take a moment and you pray and say, God, Through your spirit, show me the places where I'm trying to find my hope and my nourishment apart from you. Whether that's shopping, whether that's food, whether that's video games, whether that's Netflix or YouTube. And I've just listed everything that I myself am prone to do. Maybe yours is woodworking or yard work. Ask the Holy Spirit to say, where am I seeking false rest? And as you take in this elements, remind yourself, my rest, my hope, and my joy is only found in Christ this year. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to come and to symbolically remind yourselves and renew that rest of God the taking of the elements, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins, and what you receive and enter into his rest today.